Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you know, Chinese companies, not only in Africa, but around the world, don't always have the best reputation, particularly when it comes to corporate social responsibility. Now, CSR is one of these kind of development buzzwords. And basically what it means is that companies uh, are kind of living up to their responsibilities, both for the environment, taking care of employees, kind of taking care of governance, uh, not being corrupt. And Chinese companies, again, I think in many cases have a well-earned reputation for being uh, irresponsible in many cases. But one of the things that we're starting to learn in Africa is that the situation is a little bit less predictable than a lot of people think. And this is particularly true in the case of environmental governance. So, you know, Chinese companies have had a terrible reputation for ruining the environment and, you know, ruining Africa labor-wise and, you know, generally having kind of the worst things said about them. And at the same time, by a reputation for being controlled centrally by the Chinese government. So now that we're actually seeing research into, into this and, you know, seeing the, the level of influence that the government has, it's very interesting to see the reality. And the reality is being uncovered in part by people like Wang Xiaoxuan, who is a researcher at the International Institute for Environment Development, Environmental Development, uh, and she's a natural in the Natural Resources Group there. I think I hacked your title to pieces there, Wang Xiaoxuan, but thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Colbus. Nice Xiao, to be back. Xiao you recently put together a, a rather large research project, which you kind of summarized in a shorter article that was released in March, called CSR Practices of Chinese Businesses in the Global South. And in this research project that you undertook, you met with 58 different representatives from Chinese state-owned enterprises and private businesses, incidentally, in three African yep. countries, Kenya, Mozambique, and Uganda. Before we get too deep into kind of why you did this, why did you pick those three countries in particular to focus on? Uh, depending on our research team's connections and uh, social capital in those countries, we that's where I have worked before. That's where some of our co-researchers have worked before. We were confident that we could get some of the more, more honest interviews rather than knocking on the door, people giving us diplomatic replies. And so, to to get into some of some of the findings, um, can you can you give us a, a an outline, a little bit of the what what is particular issues that you focused on, um, and you know, kind of why did you why did you choose to focus on these particular issues? So the issue is really well. We started out by asking, so does the Chinese government really influence the behaviors, shape the behaviors of Chinese businesses abroad? And we wanted to ask this question because there seems to be so much assumption that Chinese government needs to do more about Chinese businesses abroad, and they should and they can through policies and regulations in the international development community. And, and I'm familiar with that uh, narrative or that theme because I work for IIED, which is a Western think tank, and we've been in this this thing quite a lot, trying to understand Chinese businesses in Africa. So, so we wanted to question that assumption. So then we went into the ground and we thought, okay, the only way to do this is to get perspectives, honest perspectives from as many Chinese businesses as possible in a systematic way. 
And what we got um, now, this research is uh, the paper that we summarize is not only about the role of Chinese uh, government policies, which we found to be a bit limited, um, but it's also the very complex factors that influence Chinese companies on the ground, um, host country law, host country governance factors that's not written on the law, uh, internal corporate policies, and so on, so on. See, you know, this week I got into a little bit of a discussion with one of our listeners who sent me an email, and we get this from time to time where people just are either doing a research project or they're just curious, so they drop Cobus and I an email. And in it was a very typical type of Western assumption or bias, mm. and that is in places like Africa, because mm. countries like the United States have things such as the FCPA, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and mm. that, that really makes it illegal for American companies to bribe <laughs> foreign officials. Well, we have this law. It's enforced yeah, yeah. sporadically. But because, yeah. because countries like the United States have laws like this, there yeah. is an implication that American businesses mm. and European and let's just kind of put it under Western businesses mm. are somehow more responsible in places like Africa than Chinese businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, what did your research tell you about this? And is there any performance difference between Western and Chinese corporate actors in Africa when it comes to CSR? Mm. Okay, let me tackle the very last question. Um, I was... I cannot say because that's not what our research looked at. And here I would like to emphasize, I think a lot of people assume anybody who is talking about Chinese CSR practice in Africa knows about the impacts. I think that's totally not true. um, As a researcher, I would like to emphasize that that takes a lot of systematic, um, really good research. And that was not the focus. We looked at the drivers of the drivers that shape their behaviors. I can talk about my own impression separately, maybe offline or another time. Oh, and, give us a little um, hint. Give us a little. You can't tease <laughs> us like that. Give us some of your impressions. My impression was more positive than I had thought. And maybe some listeners would say that's because I have a bias as a Chinese researcher. Uh, but I do not think so. I think it was more positive because it's one of the first few times that anybody asked the Chinese companies of their own opinion, of their own uh, perspectives. They literally, you know, went to quite a length, these interviewees describing their challenges in dealing with corruption in these countries and challenges in trying to stick to the regulation and challenges in, you know, following the contracts, but actually the local government is delayed in their share of work. Uh, there was one case in which, um, you know, this person was saying, well, we actually, um, we get dragged to the court quite a lot, even if as a contractor to this project. So this is Chinese construction company. The contract says we have no responsibility over land compensation issues or environmental environmental approval of this whole uh, project. But then the local communities or local NGOs, when they find any issue with compensation, they sue us and sue the local government just because they see the Chinese name on the um, construction site. So we have to send our lawyer every single time to the court just to explain that it's not our responsibility. I mean, that's that's uh, that, that just shows, you know, the complexity of different responsibility, legal responsibility, that these Chinese companies carry in the construction 
on construction sector especially, but then there are also other Chinese companies that yeah, really describe their best attempts to engage with the local labor to try to build their capacity trainings and and there is a whole section in the paper their best attempt at community engagement which were actually i have to say quite touching and moving so that's my general impression but i cannot say about the impact vis-a-vis other western companies Kobus, this is a very interesting topic and one i'd like to dive into a little bit deeper with you And it's really part of my frustration with regards to both journalism and academic research on this subject of CSR is that a lot of researchers will come into places like Africa. They will come in to say, we're doing research on Chinese companies. They don't speak the language. They don't necessarily have local contacts. They go knock on the front door of a Chinese company. They don't get an answer. And Chinese companies are notorious for being very conservative. And so then what they do is they talk to local stakeholders around that Chinese company (laughs) who often sometimes have an axe to grind and who themselves don't understand the actors. And so what ends up happening is we see these negative biases that start to creep into the journalism and the research. Kobus, tell me if if that's an accurate line of thinking and something that you've seen in the academic world. I've certainly seen it, but it's not, I I, I wouldn't say it's, it's the standard practice. Um, you know, kind of, I, I don't think that kind of research would necessarily carry carry a lot of weight. Um, most of the research now, especially newer research, you, you, people are, are supposed to have access, and the, you know, kind of, if they can't get access, then it, that kind of devaluates the research to a certain extent. Um, it's not really enough to just. Um, to you know, kind of to 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 do a write around essentially, you know, kind of to try to interview people around the pro, the the issue, but not people working instrumentally within within those organisations. So it, it just doesn't work. That's academia. And journalism as well. What are you seeing in NGOs and 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 say yeah. journalism? Um, well, you know, kind of. I think I think there's there's a an increasing need to speak the language um, or to work with people who can speak the language and work with people who can who can approach the stakeholders in a way that don't scare them off um, I think that 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 is increasingly becoming a, a part of of China Africa researchers you know toolkit um, both for academia and for journalism but I think it depends a lot on the particular kind of local context and how much access you have because Chinese companies tend to be very risk averse and they tend not to want to speak with people outside. Um, so, you know, kind of the, that's yeah. one complication. And then it depends a lot on the particular African government because certain African governments are a lot more approachable than other ones. Um, and language, of course, is another issue Shoshua, on both sides. Could, could I, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Come and tell us what you're thinking. Yeah, on the NGO world, I have to say, I, I, I think I agree with Kobus on the China-Africa thing, which is very encouraging, more focus on Chinese researchers, African researchers, access, blah, blah, blah. But I think on the NGO world is, especially for people working um, environmental um, stuff, um, they, they are not China specialists. They are the topical issue specialists, whether it's forest. And I see this a lot of illegal logging debate because that's my own focus. It's, it's not sensitive to the cultural or identity uh, actor specific conditions. And I have seen, without naming, you know, uh, more broad brush reports about the negative impacts. And when you go into the reports, you ask, what exactly did they mean by impacts? Did they just interview the local community, a few of them? And that's perception. That's the local perception of perceived impact, but that's not impact. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so in your research, yeah. you came out with 
five major findings, and I'd like to kind of have yeah. you walk us through each of these five findings. Let's start with sure. finding number one is low awareness and limited relevance of Chinese policies. So I assume that these are Chinese national policies in China that yeah. are then carried over uh, abroad, much like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is an American national policy that would be carried abroad with the mm-hmm. company. Uh, talk to us about mm. research finding number one. Okay, so these are Chinese national policies, like the one you mentioned, uh, equivalent of that in China, and then also uh, voluntary guidelines, which has a strong focus as soft policies. If you talk to some of these Chinese government institutions, they will say, oh, actually, yes, we really encourage them because there's this guideline about environmental practicing overseas investment. There's the other guideline. So we've included all of them as national policies and Chinese sites guidelines. So then what we found was hardly very few people actually was able to tell us, oh, yes, I'm familiar with that. Um, I think the percentage I on the paper is something like 16% on average were familiar with these documents. Uh, And the rest were either, I have never ever heard of them, or yeah, it sort of rings a bell, but I'm not quite sure what they mean. Uh, And and so that's the awareness part. And the relevance part is, um, and this depended a lot on whether we were talking to state-owned enterprise or private businesses, but in general, these people on the ground felt that partly they don't pay attention to the Chinese policies because it's not relevant to their day-to-day operation. They don't see actual benefits or help from those policies and guidelines. In improving their responsible practice. You know, that's a consistent line that we've heard from Chinese businesses on the ground, that their embassies do very little to support them uh, in any kind of activity. So it doesn't actually surprise me at all that they're also complaining that they're not being well advised and informed about Chinese laws. Yes, I'm not surprised by that. That This is something that they've been complaining about for a while. And I think it also feeds into just the reality of how big Chinese engagement is, and that you know China is not mm-hmm. a monolith. That that, that it's not that yeah, it's yeah. not centrally directed by the government. Shoshi, um, I was wondering, like in relation mm-hmm. to that, like your your second finding, you found that local governance actually matters a lot, and that the particular mm-hmm. kind of governance of the African government in question actually does have mm-hmm. an influence. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Uh, And this is actually, it's not a surprising finding if you didn't have a bias about how Chinese government should do everything to improve Chinese um, business practice. Because it's like talking about a British company operating in Kenya and saying that these companies care more about Kenyan law than British law. It's it's obvious, but it doesn't come out that that much in the China-Africa discourse. Anyway, so yes... um, What was interesting for me on the local side, on the African side of the story, was what's written on the law seemed to matter as much as what was not written on the law. So some of these, um, the the governance, political economy of these countries, such as weak, um, maybe low capacity of uh, government institutions, corruption, uh, weak rule of law. Um, they were persistently mentioned by our interviewees who found them challenging in their operations. And Kobus, this reaffirms kind of your you know, theory that I quote you on quite a bit, that Chinese companies, <laughs> wherever they are in the world, tend to kind of adapt to whatever the governance level is. So, for example, mm. uh, you know, Chinese companies operating in the United States, Japan or Europe 
tend to be very responsible. They're, for the most part, consistent with, you know, existing law. But yet Chinese companies in the DRC, uh, off the coast of Ghana, in the fishing industry there, tend to be far more loose with their interpretation or disrespect for the law, in part because the governance is worse there. So I think that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's again, a COBUS theory that I put out there. Of, you know, you're, you haven't... Well, I, I- I, I think that's entirely true for the forestry sector, at least the one that I know. There have been studies of, say, in DRC or in Cameroon, are any companies in the forestry sector legal or operating responsibly? They are not just Chinese, you know, they are, everybody is not responsi- responsible because the, of the governance you, you situation. Know, what makes it so difficult to understand what Chinese companies are doing in comparison to, say, American or European, the United States doesn't have any state-owned companies that are operating in Africa, as far mm. as I know. The French mm. uh, may actually have some state-owned companies. That's uh, you know The Europeans are a little bit more statist mm. in general. But what, what makes it difficult for the Chinese is separating what is an SOE, yeah. a state-owned enterprise, and what is a private enterprise. And then they've got these hybrid companies that sit in the middle yeah. of those two. So when you, were, yeah. when you were doing your research, what was the distinction between the attitudes from state-owned enterprises, mm-hmm. which are many of the major construction companies doing yeah. the big infrastructure projects, and yeah. the private enterprises that are doing some of the small to medium-sized enterprise work? Actually, there is even more nuance than that. Within the private companies, there were those SMEs, but they were also very well established, um, either established locally or, you know, transnational firms who, which they actually had really good internal management practice or it seemed to, they, they, they talked about them. And this might bring me to the third finding, maybe we can talk about it together, is that these, um, to me, the impression I had was SOEs, uh, and these well-established larger private companies had good internal corporate policy in place and they dedicated staff or even hired local people to um, manage either labor relations or uh, conduct environmental risk um, assessment issues to take care of those impact side. Uh, whereas the smaller companies were really much more ad hoc in their dealing, it seems, because they didn't usually they didn't have any of these uh, policies in place, and they were much less aware or they cared much less about uh, Chinese policies. And I remember um, this this state-owned enterprise telling me to show that their attitude was really serious. I remember them saying, you know, we are big and all eyes are on us. And therefore, we really try our best. Uh, Of course, this does not mean they do not engage in any suspicious practice because we didn't evaluate that. But it shows their attitude toward upholding uh, best practices. While the smaller companies, the uh, private companies, they were, you know, what was interesting for me was they talked about corruption very much as a challenge, but then they also said that smaller companies, the only way to survive is also to find way to maneuver and to circumvent that issue of corruption or this inefficient um, 
business environment. And I, I have a hunch that that's not only Chinese companies. It's probably local, smaller companies have to take the risk as well themselves to make sure they operate okay or at profitable level. One thing that, that really intrigued me in the, in the report was that you mentioned that there is very, very heavy competition between different mm. Chinese stakeholders in, in the sector. And that there's, there's yeah. also quite a level of anxiety about people causing trouble, yeah. you know, kind of like yeah. either for, for a bunch of different reasons. What does causing trouble mean in that, in that context? What kind of trouble are they talking about? First, it's definitely reputational trouble. Um, you know, well, they are all Chinese companies. These, there is a quote in the report saying these people, these smaller companies come without proper approvals and then they ruin the uh, playground for us all. And that was coming from SOE interviewee. So there is the reputational side. But I think there is an issue, especially in the construction sector, the road building, the infrastructure building sector is that you have to... Um, it's Africa is actually not very uh, one African country is actually not very big for Chinese Chinese companies. There's this one person who said, "Well, Uganda is the size of a Chinese province, but there are 22 or even more Chinese construction companies bidding. So what they do is the new arrivals, in order to gain market, they tend to underbid, and that actually cuts down on the." Uh, bottom line of these companies. So the new arrivals think, thinking, okay, I might not earn too much money this time, but I can have it on my uh, on my record, and then I can, you know, join the market from next time. But if every single person does that, every single company does that, for the companies, the larger companies, more established companies that are trying to abide by better practice, of course, their bid will not be taken up because it's more costly to do do those things. And these companies actually said maybe the issue isn't really the Chinese companies. Of course, their issue with Chinese companies um, that are with problematic um, uh, attitudes or practice, but the issue could be that the African bidding system, they do not take away the lowest bid like they do in China, apparently, but the Ugandan government would just take the lowest possible bid so that they can save cost. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah. it's a system issue. So, and that again shows you how complementary both the lack of African governance or standards is that necessarily sometimes contributes yeah. to and 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 you know to poor corporate governance, not necessarily by the Chinese but also again by the others. I always like to remind Europeans mm-hmm. of the mess that's in. Western Nigeria is because of the Royal Dutch Shell Company. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Westerners have a very, very long, long track record of, of misadventure in Africa. So I, I think that's just oh, important. Or DRC. Or the DRC yeah. is another exa- excellent yeah. example. Let's keep going with your findings here. Point number four is you talk about awareness yeah. of voluntary guidelines. Now, these are industry standards that are set. They're not necessarily regulatory by the government, but they're sometimes put forward by interest groups, nonprofits. Um, you know, mm. these are fair trade types of things. Talk to us a little bit about what voluntary guidelines are and what the Chinese corporate relationship is with them. Sure. Uh, I think that's actually not the fourth finding, but I can talk about the voluntary guidelines because a lot of NGOs are interested in this. And then we can talk about the internal corporate policy. So the voluntary guidelines, um, as I mentioned earlier, they're, yes, promoted by NGOs or the Chamber of Commerce of, uh, you know, metals or different, or or it could be government, uh, government institutions like the Ministry of Environmental Protection 
protection together with uh, MOFCOM release that environmental sustainability in outward investment. I do not remember the exact name. but So those are guidelines, trying soft standards, suggesting the Chinese companies to abide by these best practices. Uh, what we found is definitely very low awareness for the general uh, environmental guideline, uh, but actually fairly good um, okay awareness for the sectoral one. So there was a mining one. We asked all the mining companies to comment on the mining one. And then there is also um, um, uh, construction, that the contracting uh, issued by the Chinese Const- Contracting Association. Um, I think what came out, though, is although there were some awareness, um, famili- familiarity was low, and also that um, the uptake, and this is combined with past IID research and engagement, is that um, they might be aware of these policies, but they really need much more dissemination um, and words through workshops, trainings on understanding what they are about. And to me, it seems to be a missed opportunity because these are documents by Chinese organizations, a lot of them in the system, you know, tizune, as we say in Chinese, uh, showing a good, uh, show, making a stance that these good practices matter. And if that message is not carried to, to the people on the ground, then it's such a missed opportunity. And that means that I think any NGOs or Western donors or anybody who wants to support this kind of initiative need to think about beyond for beyond publishing these papers, these voluntary guidelines, spend a lot of energy on disseminating them and enabling the Chinese um, uh, Chinese uh, actors, so the government institutions or the Chamber of Commerce that publish these to do the dissemination capacity building. Um, one of the, just to, relating to your, your final um, finding, one of the issues that, that surprised me that I hadn't thought of before is that financiers also have an mm. impact on how, how effectively mm. these, these, these kind of corporate social responsibility and, and you know, general risk minimizing can, can actually happen on, in, in these projects. Um, w- yeah. What kind of impacts do the financiers have? And what what makes the the Chinese financiers, you know, kind of what makes them unique in this case? Uh, Yes, uh, I think this is going to be a quick answer, as I think it's something that that to be researched much more in details and we did not focus on the financial condition necessarily. But for the few interviews that I did, I remember the Chinese companies mentioning, okay, so there is the World Bank, there is um, ADB, and there is JICA, all of these other non-Chinese financiers. And actually, them mentioning, a few of them coming to conduct uh, inspections or checking in with environmental stuff, uh, environmental requirements. They did not mention that for Chinese financiers necessarily. but it could be that the Chinese financiers do that and they uh, not as often as uh, the others, but it, it's, um, um, it didn't come across as if the Chinese financiers cared as much about those, but I cannot say for conclusively and more research is needed. Now, your fifth and your final finding in your report was, you know, 
kind of surprising to me. And, and this is really what gives me a little bit of hope. And it challenges in many ways the negative narrative uh, that mm. some companies really do care about social impact and mm. localizations. It may not be consistent, but it is not yeah. accurate to suggest that Chinese companies uh, aren't doing CSR programs in Africa. And, yes. you know, but you said that they are very ad hoc and they lack some expertise in doing it. But it's there. Talk to us a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, also, it's always been a surprise for me, too. Um, I, I consider it um, it's a bit similar to what I see in China with my limited work experience in China um, on these issues is, you know, a, a company operating in a rural village, they see how poor these villagers might be. So they visit during Chunjie, so that's the Chinese New Year, with gifts to their employees' home and that kind of more of a person-to-person -person relationship uh, that I, 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 a lot of, quite a few describe such re relationship to be applicable to their daily life in Africa. And they were describing exactly the similar type of thing I just mentioned um, that they do in these countries. Um, what, what I did observe, as, I, well, as you already mentioned, is it tend to be ad hoc, or it could be, even if it's ad hoc, it could be very frequent. It's just not structured or written down as a program. And they tend to respond to the needs of the communities as they come up. And one of the person, I don't know if it's in our paper, but one quote I remember is, oh yeah, during the rainy season, especially the the machinery are there, you know, not working idle. So, so if there is any request, of course, every time we try to help if it's something within our uh, means. Um, well, I do suggest that um, perhaps if those efforts are systematically written down and um, you know packaged in a way that many Western companies do their PR, it would be an Im image changer for a lot of these Chinese companies. And I think more this, the savvy and better localized Chinese companies actually do that. And I have, I remember in a few interviews, them saying, yeah, the PR department is led by a local, you know, senior manager who is experienced in this. Um, yeah, so, so, surprised to me too. Yeah. And positive one. You know, but Kobus, you know, kind of reflecting now on, on our conversation here, it, it's not surprising to me that people are confused, journalists, consumers, you know, citizens, whoever, because when you look at the headlines, you see, you know, Chinese overfishing in, in Western Africa. You see the illegal Chinese gold mines in, in Ghana. We, you know, we see the shark fishing off the coast of Mozambique. We, we see all of this kind of dereliction of responsibility. And then, and I think even a lot of Chinese people would be actually surprised to see this because here we are yet again in China confronted with another devastating scandal, this time related to vaccines where, you know, children are dying. And if it's not, you know, you know, spoiled milk, if it's not, you know, bridges that are falling or trains that are not poorly constructed, you know, corporate governance in China is a disaster. And so yeah. it's only natural that China would export their, you know, incompetence when it comes to governing themselves to other countries. But yet, again, as we're hearing, the story isn't that simple. And, you know, and, and this is why I think it's so fascinating that when when people look at this issue of CSR, 
that they don't approach it with the negative narrative, the biases that they may bring from looking at what's going on in China, mm. looking at what smaller actors are doing in places like Africa or South America, because that mm. itself doesn't necessarily reflect the reality on the ground, which is far more complex. Kobus, give us your final thoughts on this issue. Well, as a media scholar, I think it all comes down to media frequently. <laughs> it's, you know, so much of this has to do with how these companies communicate their their achievements. And, you know, kind of, in, in, and, but the thing is, media ne- necessitates openness. It's impossible to, to do, a, a, to have a full um, and fruitful media strategy without giving people access. Because most of the time, people who can, who can make media are not the people who are working at the company. And and so the you know that is one of one of the problems is that frequently these companies find it very difficult to work with either local or international mm. kind of media entities and yes. you know kind of and so what they achieve end up not being known because the only way that it can be known mm. is via media so i think you know this kind of media engagement is going to be an important thing for chinese companies in the future I, I, I entirely, sorry if I may jump in, I entirely agree. And I think I'm not trying to, I mean, so far we've sort of said it's not the responsibility of Chinese companies necessarily, it's the others. But I do want to make the point that I think the Chinese companies are responsible to communicate uh, whatever these positive impacts that they think they are having, or also they're responsible for um, connecting with local communities and local NGOs. And and I think, if anything, that's one issue that I see coming from this research, but also my general engagement in Africa with these Chinese companies is that why does it take me or why does it take other Chinese researchers to get this kind of picture out to the international community? Why couldn't be the local NGO? Why couldn't be the local community leader to add positive voice to these issues? Um, I think ultimately this is partly the corporate culture back in China where, you know, you are never really forced to engage with a civil society. Um, but but I think that perhaps is one of the biggest lessons that Chinese companies need to learn when operating in Africa or other developing countries. Just be more open and be more engaging. And sure, these local NGOs might find some kind of issue in their operational practices, but they would for local companies and for Western companies, I bet, almost always um, across the board. So when there are problems found, you know, how do Chinese companies deal with it? Are you going to hide and then be embarrassed and back away and say, deny everything? Or are you going to constructively engage and try to find the solution together? And I think that's partly probably cultural issue, but it's also attitude issue. And it's something that I think some of these better localized companies are learning. Um, and and my final point is I'm quite encouraged when I was doing this interview that there is a new generation of Chinese people in Africa, which they are fairly young. They might be similar to me having international education background or, you know, very open to communicating. They go out to drinks after din- after work with their African colleagues. And I think that's how it starts, the new generation, the new immersion to this local culture and they probably will shape the corporate governance in a very different way 10 years down the line. And if anybody's interested in finding out about that new generation, I can't recommend enough 
that you go to China House Kenya, which is run by Huang Hongxiang, who we've had on the show many times. Uh, you can find them at facebook.com slash China House Kenya. And they're doing a lot of research and a lot of work with Chinese companies and the Chinese expat community in places like Kenya to bring them together with civil society. And so I think this is very much hmm. representative of what you're talking about, Xiaoxue, in terms of yep, integrating entirely. that and this new generation that's out there. I also want to kind of point people towards the research by Barry Soutman and Yen Hairong, who they themselves have done a lot of research in Zambia in the, in the Copper Belt, uh, showing that mm. Chinese corporate behavior is actually at par or even better than many of the Western companies because the mm. Chinese have been accused for a lot of poor governance issues in Zambia. And again, it just shows you the complexity of this issue. And, and my final point is that, Kobus, you were talking about the media. And, and remember when we interviewed Zhang Zizhu, who was the Phoenix News correspondent in Nairobi, uh, she's working for a Chinese language news company, and she's, you know, ethnically and linguistically Chinese, and the Chinese companies weren't even talking to her. So this isn't <laughs> actually a bias towards Westerners. Chinese companies just, as Xiaoxia pointed out, don't have any experience in kind of being open and talking with civil society. Uh, listen, the report is really worthwhile reading, CSR Practices of Chinese Businesses in the Global South. If you are at all interested in CSR issues as a whole, it's critical that you understand what's going on in China so that you don't kind of adopt this simplistic narrative because it is far more complex than that. The author is Wang Xiaoxue, who's a researcher in the International Institute for Environmental Development in the Natural Resources Group. Xiaoxue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And always what we want to do is kind of let people follow you on social media or the IIED. Where can people find you? Yep. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Xiaoxue Wen. Um, also, um, my, uh, on IID, we can see more of our work, iid.org slash China. And I also like to flag, I was one of the editors with my colleague, Laila Bakri, together. But, but we really owe it to the other co-authors who are all Chinese and did excellent job talking to these Chinese companies. It's fantastic work. And once again, that uh, is X-I-A-O-X-U-E-W-E-N-G for Twitter. Is that your Correct. name? Great. Yep. Um, a lot of people sometimes have a little difficulty with the Chinese names on Twitter. So oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm glad we got that down. Kobus, your name is equally perplexing on Twitter. Go ahead. Tell us what it is. Yes, very bad choice many years ago. It's Stadenesque, but S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. I love it. I love it. And Kobus, if people want to find out what we're doing these days at the China Africa Project, what's the best way for them to kind of connect with us? The easiest way is our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we update uh, uh, every four hours, basically, a, a new China Africa news item. And um, so it's this constant news feed. Um, we also do a, a weekly newsletter, which is a kind of a boiled down version of that with a scholarly article, a link to our newest podcast and four uh, news articles. So to give you a little bite of China Africa. And I also want to give a shout out to our newest partner, City Weekend in China, which is one of the magazines, the English language magazines in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And uh, if you're an expat in China, you know exactly what City Weekend is. We're going to be launching a partnership with them to answer your questions. You're literally the most embarrassing, sensitive, politically incorrect questions about the Chinese in Africa, Africans in Chinese. We'll do our best to answer it. We're going to tap experts <laughs> like Xiaoxue. Uh, but you know, one of those questions that you're just too embarrassed to ask. And, uh, and our first question came from a Nigerian. And uh, we, we were sparing people's names because 
because we think it's only polite <laughs> to do that. But the first question is, why are Chinese people so racist towards black people? So uh, that gives you an idea of what we're going to be doing. And so every week we're going to be answering a new question. We're going to be putting it up on our website, also up on the City Weekend websites in China. Uh, God, I wonder what the censors in China are going to do with us, Cobus. Um, and then, uh, but if you want to pose a question to us, we would love to have you your question. Uh, you can go to our website, and we've got email links there. Facebook, you can message us. You can hit Cobus and I up at Twitter. I'm at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. But really, this is for any question you want to ask, and we're going to answer it in kind of straight, plain talk. Uh, we're going to pull Cobus out of his academic kind of cave and get him to speak <laughs> plain English on these issues. So we would love to hear from you. That's a new thing that we're going to be doing every week. In addition to our email newsletter that goes out every week, uh, you can sign up for that as well on Facebook or at our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>